Matthew 21, starting in verse seven, they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude says, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, no, your calendar is not off. This is not Palm Sunday. But I think we make a mistake sometime that we uh, only preach on this passage during Palm Sunday. We only preach on the resurrection during Easter. And we only preach on the incarnation during Christmas. These are eternal truths that are fit any time. So today we want to preach on the subject, open the door and let him in. Father, in the precious and holy name of Jesus, we're asking for uh, the anointing upon your preached word today. We know that there is a resident anointing upon your written word. It is forever settled in heaven. But Lord, as we communicate its truths today, we're praying that your spirit would be on the speaker and the hearer, and we praise you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise for his word, would you? Jesus sent his disciples into Jerusalem to bring him back a donkey and the colt of that donkey. And as they brought it to him on the top of Mount of Olives, he began to ride down the Mount of Olives, kind of a serpentine uh, type trek down that road. When you get to a certain curve, and I've told you before, one of my favorite places in, in Jerusalem is that place where you round that curve and see Jerusalem and the Temple Mount looming in, in panoramic vision before you. At that place, Jesus stopped his own parade, broke down and wept over Jerusalem and the things that were facing Jerusalem and because they had rejected him. He came on down and they had spread their clothes in his way. They had, had tore down palm branches from off the trees. They were rejoicing. They were crying out, Hosanna! which is uh, Lord save. And they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when Jesus got down to Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he purged the temple of the money changers and those that sold doves. And he made this announcement. I'm home. I'm home. One of the most gratifying things that happens to any man you know, they say that, that to a man, his home, his house is his castle. 
Anytime that a man comes home and his small children and his wife and the dogs and the cats all come running to greet daddy. That makes him feel like a king. Now that doesn't last very long for the children. They get older, older and not that impressed and it lasts even less for the wife to be impressed. And the dogs, uh, if you keep treats in your pocket, they'll keep coming and wagging their tails. But there's something about that greeting when daddy's home. And Jesus came into the temple and said, daddy's home, I, I'm home. Now we want to talk about the house of the Lord. First of all, when Jesus came into the temple, he established the fact that that house was to be a house of praise. In fact, what he rode into the temple was not the donkey. What he rode into the temple was the praise of the people. The Bible says that the whole city was moved at their praise. That word is seismo. It's where we get, to, or sio, where we get the word seismic from. Uh, even the word for earthquake in the New Testament is a derivative of that word. It means that the, that the whole city shook at the praise. These people were so filled with praise, and of course there were those that, that hated that praise. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to identify people that have a spiritual problem, look at people that hate praise. If you ever have the opportunity in a, in a service like we had today where the Spirit of the Lord is here and people are praising the Lord and raising their hands and shouting amen, I, I looked over as we were singing that last song and one of our praise team members had a tear coming down the side of her face. Look at the people that are pouting in that moment. Look at the people that are indifferent at that moment. Look at the people that are scoffing at those moments. There's something wrong with us with our spirit when we start hating and despising praise. And yet the very religious people of Jesus' day, the people that were in charge, the clergy hated the praise. They said, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus said, not today. There were other days that he had said as he would do miracles, don't tell anybody who I am, but this was his coronation today. And they said, tell them to be quiet. And he said, not today. Today, if these don't cry out, even the rocks will cry out. I don't want a rock to cry out in my place, do you? I want to take the opportunity to praise the Lord. And even the children got in on the act that they started praising the Lord. You know, uh, Psalm 22 and 3 says, Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. God inhabits our praise. That word yashab means that he sits down on our praise. He is enthroned in our praise. It also is used that he lives or abides in our praises. It's even a term in the Old Testament that means to be married to. It simply means the place where God feels comfortable, the place where God is at home, the place where God sits down, the place where God is enthroned is in the place of praise. Praise is where God lives. God lives around his throne room. There are angels that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's the atmosphere that God's comfortable in is the atmosphere of praise. You remember that Shunammite woman? The Bible says she was a great woman. And the prophet Elisha would pass by. And every time he did, she would ask, invite him to eat supper. 
and he got to going by there so much because preachers know where they can find a free meal and he started going by there so much. She said, you know what? Her husband said, over here against the wall, let's build him his own room. Let's put him a little table in there and a little cot and let's put him a little uh, lamp in there and every time he'd pass by, he would stop there in that place and, and, and that's where he would abide because they had built a room for him. If you want to build room in your house, if you want to build a house for God, you build it by praise. You say, hey, hand me another hallelujah. Hand me another praise the Lord. If you want God to live with you, you live a life of praise. If you want God to be present in the church service, you do that by creating an atmosphere of praise. Could somebody say hallelujah? Somebody say praise the Lord. Can you say glory to God? Glory to God. Miracles happen, things happen in the place of praise. In fact, whenever those children started praising him uh, and the, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders said, tell them to be quiet. He said to them, haven't you ever read that out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? Now Jesus was quoting Psalm 8 and 2. And there's some liberal scholars that says that Jesus misquoted the scripture. He didn't misquote the scripture. He interpreted the scripture. And here's what Psalm 8 and 2 says. Out of the mouths of babes and, nurse, and nursing infants or sucklings, you have ordained strength. So Jesus said the ordained strength in the Old Testament is the perfected praise of the New Testament. Are you a weak Christian? Start praising him. Are you being defeated in your life? Start praising him. Are you mully, got the mully grubs and go around looking at the top of your shoes? Start praising him. It's amazing how you'll get strength, ordained strength from God whenever you create an atmosphere of praise because his house is a house of praise. If you believe that, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. But not only is his house a house of praise, it's a house of purity. This is a problem that we have sometime in the 21st century American church. We've got a lot of churches that want to be houses of praise. They build their identity around houses of praise. In fact, uh, the, 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 the main emphasis of the church is to do whatever it, does, it needs to to build the music program and atmosphere and get the best of musicians. And don't we have wonderful musicians and singers here at West Ward? And get the best of technology and, and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on that. I know some people make pretty good living selling that kind of stuff. And, and so they, they spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on that to create this atmosphere. And yet there are people who have hollow praise. They have vain praise. They have misguided praise because their lives do not reflect the love of the one that they're singing about. It's not enough to praise him. He wants his house to be a house of purity. When God moves in, he doesn't like dirty dishes stacked in the sink. Amen. When he moves in, he doesn't like dust on the furniture. When he moves in, he doesn't like trash thrown all over the floor. God's a neat freak. He wants a pure house. He wants a clean house 
to live in. As soon as he entered into that temple, he began to overturn the tables of the money changers and those that sold doves, and he began to run them and cast them out of the temple, and he said, this is, this is my house, and my house is gonna be called a house of prayer. Now, why did he have such a problem with the money changers? Why did he have a, such a problem with those that sold doves? It wasn't what they were doing. It was a legitimate enterprise. There were people that would come from all over the world to go to Passover. And they didn't want to take a lamb or doves or whatever they needed for hundreds of miles walking. So when they would get to the temple, they would want to buy that. Well, there were, they were cheaper outside, but a lot of times they were inferior outside. And it had to be a spotless lamb, a spotless dove. So they would go in to the temple and buy that. Not only that, but the money changers were serving a legitimate purpose. You couldn't just use any kind of money. You couldn't use Roman money, you couldn't use Greek money, you couldn't use money that they spent back home, with, you know, maybe from Alexandria, Egypt, or wherever they came from. There were certain currency that had to be used inside the temple. So when you gave, now listen, we're, this is not temple, we'll take any kind of money you got here, amen. But, but listen, they had to have a certain kind of currency. So those money changers were doing a favor. And have you ever been to a foreign country and you had American money and you had to get it changed into whatever the currency was, whether, you know, I've been down to Mexico, I've been up to Canada, I've been over to Israel, all of those places I needed the services of money changers. And the problem is, I hope they were honest because I didn't have a clue by the time everything got to going around. But these money changers, it gave them the opportunity to be dishonest. So. These were legitimate enterprises, but they were done in an illegitimate manner. They were done in an illegitimate practice. In other words, these people had become thieves. In fact, a lot of times the person at the temple who was in charge of inspecting the sacrifices to say, yeah, that one's clean enough and that one's not clean enough, he would be on the toll. He'd get a kickback from those that were selling sacrifices inside the temple. So if somebody brought in a sacrifice from outside the temple, he'd say, uh-uh, that ain't good enough. You're going to have to go over here and get one of these in the temple. And the problem was is the doves inside the temple cost about 15 times more than those sold outside the temple. In fact, the high priest owned the stalls inside the temple where the money changers and those that sold sacrifices were set up. The money changers would use unfair practice. They would take advantage of naive people. It was not an illegitimate enterprise, but it was illegitimate in its practice. And then it was also, many feel, in an illegitimate place. They had not only stayed in their place, but they had invaded into the holy place. Can I tell you that Jesus does not like it when people that are seeking him are taken advantage of. Now listen, you, you, you can watch Christian television and see many people that love God, many people that are sincere, many people that are doing a great and wonderful job 
but you also get somebody that's trying to sell you a gallon of holy water. Somebody that'll tell you now on Easter, your offering counts more. Make sure you give a resurrection offering if you want your miracle. God's telling me that there's 50 people that should send in $1,000 right now. And what's more concerned about the hucksters and the con men that do that is the honest-hearted Christians that'll fall for that kind of stuff. But God hates it when people who are seeking him are taken advantage of. So Jesus went in and he overturned the temples. He overturned the tables of those that, that sold that. He made a mess in the temple. This, this is an institutional change. And the church today needs some institutional change. What I mean by that is we need to change our priorities. Now listen, fellowship is important, but fellowship with God is a greater priority than fellowship with one another. As important as it is to get together, it's more important that we get together in the presence of the Lord. The church is fine to have ice cream socials and hot dog dinners and pancake eating contests. It's fine, but when your church is defined by that, something's wrong. It's fine for the youth group to go on uh, ski trips or go down uh, to the ocean because we're Pentecostal, we don't go to the beach. Go down to the ocean, all that's fine. But whenever you're defined by that, and whenever you shop around and find the church that's got the best social atmosphere, got the best social program, all of a sudden you've taken that. Listen, you know what the word profane means? It means before the temple. That's what it means in Latin, profanus, before the temple. Whenever you start letting the secular invade the sacred, something's wrong. Institutionally, we've got to get back and say, you know what, this isn't our house. This is God's house. This is God's business. What we sing here is God's music. What we talk about here is God things. This is, this is God's time. This isn't our time. This isn't what I like. It isn't what I want. It's what God wants. Institutionally, there's gotta be a return to the seeking of the Lord. And I know, I know that this is the temple and I know that this brick and mortar and carpet and pews and all of that, I know that this is a building, but it is a building that's been dedicated exclusively for the worship of the Lord. And there's something about our attitude connected to this building that spills over in our attitude connected to the worship of God. And somehow, some way, because we dress more casual and act more casual and conduct ourselves more casual, we've gotten more casual about the business of being in God's presence, but we need to honor him and understand that some things are worth taking a break from, and it's not just a place to get our jollies and, and get our laughs and slap each other on the back. This is a place that people come to meet with Almighty God. This is his house. It's his house. And then there were individuals. Jesus drove them out of the temple. He didn't just kick over their tables. He drove them. He cast them out of the temple. He deals with some individuals. 
Here's what Hebrews 12, 26, 27 says. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yes, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And don't you realize that what we're experiencing right now in this world, this, listen, this pandemic isn't just an American thing. This is a global pandemic. You know what we're experiencing? We're experiencing a shaking. That's what we're experiencing. God is shaking the church. I, I, listen, you're going to find out when this is over those who had a heart for God and those that were just going along to get, get along. This is, a, this is a revealer of people's priorities. In fact, here's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God takes sin away of the world. He's going to baptize, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize the Holy Ghost in fire. And in Matthew 3, 12, he says this, and his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is where they would grind the wheat so that the husk would fall off of the wheat. The chaff would fall off and the wheat would fall to the ground and they'd take a huge fan and they'd fan it. And because the chaff was lighter than the kernel of, of wheat, the chaff would get caught up in the wind and be blown away. And John the Baptist said about Jesus, when he comes, he's going to cleanse thoroughly, purge his floor. He's got a fan in his hand and those things that are not able to remain are going to be blown away. I'm going to tell you, God is fanning the church even now. Even now. His house is a house of purity, and then his house is a house of prayer. He said, you've made it a den of thieves, but my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now listen, that means that there is an exclusive nature to it. First of all, what we do in God's house, there's an exclusive nature to it. We're here for one reason, and that's to communicate, to worship, and to be in the presence of Almighty God. That's why we're here. A lot of other good byproducts to that, but they're not the main thing. And it's exclusive worship. We don't worship Buddha. We don't worship Muhammad. We don't worship Allah. We don't worship some Hindu God. We don't worship some great spirit in the, in the sky. We don't worship the spirit of our ancestors. We worship Jehovah God. We worship the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, the, the life. And our prayers go to Almighty God and we do those prayers in the name of Jesus. It's an exclusive club. The church is an exclusive club. Only person that can be in the church are those that have been born again of the Spirit by the price that Jesus paid. But it's also inclusive. 
And that doesn't mean that it lets in all kinds of sin. What inclusive means is this. He said this will be a house of prayer for all nations. It's not a white church. It's not a black church. It's not a yellow church. It's not a red church. It's not a rich church. It's not a poor church. It's not a white collar church. It's not a blue collar church. It, it's not a church on this side of the track or a church on that side of the track. It's not a city church or a country church or a big church or a small church. This is his house and his house is to be a place of prayer for all nations. But it is to be a place of prayer. Of prayer. It's amazing how the thing that gets the least priority in God's house is talking to God. Guys like me stand up here and we spend most of our time talking about God and singing about God. But when we're given the opportunity to talk to God, it's when we spend the, less, the, the, the least amount of time. It elicits the least amount of passion. It draws the least crowd. Amen. <laughs> I know it's good preaching because we're silent. <laughs> Don't worry, my toes hurt too. But listen, when it became a house of prayer, it also became a house of power. Listen at what it says in Matthew 21, 14. And then the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He healed them. Listen, I believe that this triumphal entry gives us a pattern of what revival looks like. I believe that his house has to be a house of praise. I believe it has to be a house of purity. And I believe it has to be a house of prayer. And if those things happen, I believe it'll be a house of power. You know, God did not quit healing in the first century AD, and he didn't quit healing in the 1950s or 1960s. He's still a healer. He's still a savior. He can still cause the blind to see again and the deaf to hear again and the lame to walk again and the dead to live again. He can still put hearts back together. He can still put homes back together. He can still put marriages back together. He can still meet people's financial needs and their emotional needs and their physical needs and their spiritual needs. He can still do miracles. He still does miracles. But I'm gonna tell you, he does it in a place that has been purified for him. And when we become a house of, of praise and a house of purity and a house of, of a prayer, he will make it a house of power. Now we've been taught about this building and we've been taught about that building, the temple, but let me tell you what his house is now. It's us. The body of Christ is the temple of God. He says that we are lively stones. I think it was in, in uh, Peter, Peter's writing that he said, we are living, lively stones, living stones that we have been brought together and assembled and built up to be a habitation of God 
through his spirit. The body of Christ is the temple of God. In fact, his holy of holies is our heart. Our hearts are his holy of holies. So I need to become and we need to become a people of praise and of purity and of prayer and we'll be a people of power. But listen, this is the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. John is different than all the other books and John gives a different chronology of this event. All of the other three gospels put it at the end, the last week of Jesus' life. But John puts this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And either John paid no attention to the chronology of it or, uh, or John gives a different event and many scholars believe it's a different event. In fact, the language that Jesus uses is different. Let me just read it to you, John 2, 13 through 17. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And here is where when he made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered excuse me, that it was written that his zeal for your house has eaten me up. The zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus got red hot. Jesus gets very territorial about his father's house. He gets very territorial. And I want you to notice the transition in Jesus' language. At the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the temple, cleanses the temple, and he says, this is my Father's house. Three years later, at the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he goes back into the temple and he says, this is my house. Now he's quoting scripture there, but I believe he's intentionally quoting it, applying it to himself. But then... This was Matthew 21. In Matthew 23, he weeps over Jerusalem again. 23 through 39, uh, 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, this is my father's house. Then he says at, at the triumphal entry, this is my house. But then according to Matthew, a day or two later, he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, your house. And this is the struggle with his church is that sometimes we forget it's his house and we start thinking it's our house. And here's the problem when it, we make it our house. He says, your house is left to you desolate. When we get in control 
and he's no longer in control. Death, destruction, and desolation is the result. He said, you won't, you won't see me again till I come back at that next triumphal entry when I split the clouds and every eye shall see me. And I'll come back into this temple and I will make it my house. There was an elderly black gentleman back in the Jim Crow era. And he loved the Lord. And he only lived just right next door to a church that was a, and I hate to use this language, but it was what it was. It was a white church. Kind of a little bit of a sophisticated church. He lived right next door. He'd all, he had a home church but it was 10 miles away. He wasn't able to go anymore. He didn't drive. Congregation was poor. There wasn't very many people who had a car anyway. And if they did, they couldn't afford the gas to come get him. But he would set out on his porch and he'd listen on Sunday to the singing and overhear the preaching. And one day on his way to a car, his car, a young man had a little cute little family, a few children. He walks by and he sees that elderly black gentleman there and he sees him with a smile on his face he, and he just stops at the gate and picks up a conversation with him. And it got where every week they started having a conversation and, and he found out that he was an elderly gentleman. He couldn't, he, you know, couldn't walk to church anymore. He'd done that for years. He didn't have a car and so forth. And so he said, hey, why don't you come be in church with us? He said, oh, I'd love to, but I, I'm not sure that I, that I can't. Oh, yeah, yeah, come on. You be my guest. So he brings him into church, and he sits with him. And he's there, he's there for about three weeks. And the deacons go to this young fellow and say, listen, we know you've got plenty of zeal, but you know, we, don't, we don't go along with this. If he wants to go to church, there's churches for his kind. He can go to his own church. I'd come in here and mess up our church. He'd go to his own church. And they put the young man up and they said, you, you're going to have to tell him. Young man called him to the side and said, listen, Sam, I'm, I'm sorry. And he shuffled his feet. He said, I'm so hurt. I'm so embarrassed. He said, but they're not going to let you to come to church here anymore. And the young man didn't know if he had lost a friend, but the next Sunday there was old Sam sitting out on the porch, still smiling. Young man kind of wanted to try to walk by him and avoid him because he was embarrassed. And Sam said, hey, hey, brother, how you doing? So he stops and talks to him. The young man actually opens the gate and goes up to the porch. He said, Sam, once again, I want to tell you, I'm so sorry. So sorry that they wouldn't let you in. He said, well, brother, I'll tell you, it hurt my feelings, but I got to praying about it, and I talked to the Lord. And Jesus told me not to worry about it, that he had been trying to get into that church for years, and they wouldn't let him in either. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea. The church that he has purchased 
with his own blood. And using my own language, he says, I came to the door of my house and you had changed the locks. I came to the door of my house and my key didn't fit anymore. And Jesus is locked out of the house that he built. The one that he purchased with his own blood. And he humbles himself enough to the crucified Savior, the risen Lord, and the mighty King is forced to knock like a beggar at the door of his own house. And here's what he said. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone, anybody, will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. Now listen, as you sit here this morning, let me tell you something. You've got the key. Jesus says, I want in. And if there's anybody here that'll let me in, I'll come in and fellowship with them. I wonder if there's anybody here that wants Jesus in the house. 